Aspire to dream. Aspire to achieve. Aspire to lead. Aspire to forge your own path. I'm Josh Booth. On behalf of the Aspire team, I want to welcome you to the third chapter of Aspire, the story of an entrepreneur, with our special guest, Ambassador Edward Crawford, and host, Thomas Kelly. The 30-year time span from the 60s to the 90s feature two of the most important landmarks of Ed Crawford's career. From creating his first successful business in 1962 to the carefully planned takeover of a public company in 1992. Navigating through the highs and lows, victories and defeats, resisted by some who fiercely opposed him, and assisted by heroes who came along in his life at just the right time. Always guided by the entrepreneur's motto, fortune favors the brave. This is Aspire Chapter 3, Heroes and Villains. In 1962, you're already working, you're busy, but somehow you find the time to go to night school at John Carroll. Yeah, I'd been going to John Carroll Night School for two, three years, and I got a job maybe because I was going to night school and impressed people at Inland Steel. Because Inland Steel was a U.S. steel manufacturer, and every one of them, U.S. Steel, all Bethlehem Steel, all had companies that made steel pails for paint. I was a sales trainee for Inland Steel Container. During that Inland Steel Container, I began going to night school and going, it was a co-op program. So it was very effective, but it was very tiring. And I was never a really good student because I never really concentrated on things, you know, like that. Even with dyslexia, I knew I was smart when I was younger. I didn't, I didn't understand what it was, but I, I'll overcome it, you know, type of thing. Did there come a time when you finally got a name for that? You finally realized... Years later. Somebody told you, okay, school. you were well into adulthood. Oh, my God, yeah. I when was, they, said, I, I, they said, hey, Ed, that's called dyslexia. Yeah. And there I was s- in deep in high school mm-hmm. when, when they put a name to it. But it, you knew it wasn't going to deter you. No. I was a trainee. I, I was just so excited to go to the sales meeting on Monday and say I got an order, and I brought the order with me. But the man that gave me the order told me that he probably wouldn't accept it. And then it was Lionel Carpell, powerful guy. And uh, I got to know him pretty well. And then I started saying to him, you know, uh, and the people that overhaul the paint and lead and, you know, five or six major accounts, I had become friends with them now. And they were trying to help me out, but I couldn't, they wouldn't accept the pricing, the competitive pricing. Finally, I said, hey, if I can get in the container business and make containers, steel containers, will you buy them from me? They all said, well, if you, if you do that, you can get in the container business. You know, if you can have containers, metal containers, and they, they, the bottoms won't fall out of them, we'll buy them from you. We'll help you out. And uh, that group, you know, uh, you and I have talked about the, uh, the concept of heroes in my life. We've, uh, up to this point, we've talked about two. Well, that group of those individuals that own those companies took me under their wing and they knew it was a big idea. They probably thought it would never happen, but they encouraged me. And I had now I had the orders, you know, I had the idea. I didn't have any money. Now the money needed to buy the equipment. I said, well, that should be easy to do. You know, uh, <laughs> who do I know that has money? If we don't have it, somebody else must have it. So one piece of equipment was going to be $18,000. But I didn't have the money to equipment. I didn't have the money for the working capital. But I was persistent, you know, so about after a year and a half, 
you know, I went to a friend of mine. And incidentally, the company I'm talking about, his name is Cleveland Steel Container. Now, this is 1962. And mm-hmm. my partner, Chris, who's a mechanical, because without him and all those folks that, that with their Harley Davidsons and all those motorcycles, they could fix anything. We put together after raising $28,000. And his father was a doctor at the Cleveland Clinic. He decided he was so shocked that his son was doing something that made sense that he raised a little money for us. Mm-hmm. And we started the company in 62. We were really in production by 63. So I could buy this, started buying all this junk equipment, and they started repairing it. And we got an old building down in Cleveland, 2770 79th Street. Later, incidentally, where they had the Huff riots. Right. And, East 79th. Uh, and uh, they burned down the building next to us on both sides. They never touched our building because we employed. <laughs> I wonder. They employed all, you know, Afro-American young people and so forth. And they got me to leave the building, which I didn't want to do that day when they threatened that they were going to burn the, come down to 79th Street. And uh, when I left there, they got me to leave there. You know, they were standing, you know, all black young people, old people, 26, 30 people on the roof with shotguns. Mm-hmm. And uh, they shipped our building. And so that was a very, very meaningful experience. I raised the money and we got some investors and they were a group of investors. I raised the money and uh, started the company. And that company is still in existence today, 1962. And my original partner, Chris, owns the company. And the name of that company today is? Cleveland Steel Container. Still the same name. It's saying the same name. And I'm very proud of that. And I got the equipment, and now I didn't have any working capital. So I working capital, what's that? I didn't have an education. I wasn't trained. I didn't go to NBA. I didn't even know what working capital was, meaning receivables, inventory, and you know, and paying the people. And I had this one desk, had in one side of drawers, I had how much I owed, and the other side of the other drawer, how much I had. Got the company going, you know, again on a shoestring, and so many people there were involved in it, including Chris. And I was really proud, and I, I really felt good. But between 1964, when we started, and 1969, in those five years, we st- I started borrowing money for the company through Small Business Administration, downtown Cleveland. Where did you find out about the, uh, SBA loans? Well, people started talking. I, I keep kept saying, you know, the Horowitz brothers, they had a steel business. And they said, when I wanted to get steel from these three, you don't have any credit. So I said, gentlemen, there's two of their brothers. I said... Give me a half a truckload of steel on Monday morning. I will get this steel. I'll turn it into pails. I'll ship it, collect the money on Thursday. And next Monday, you'll bring me another half a load of steel and I'll pay you back and I'll pay the employees. That was my, that was, I was in net zero operating capital long before it was taught in the university. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, between 19, by 1969, the company had gone from zero doing $9 million in sales. we gotten some money from the Small Business Administration. And in 1969, I was the runner-up. I won the state, Ohio State Man of the Year, SBA, and I went to Philadelphia and came in second in the country. For the national SBA the national, yeah. Man of the Year. Yeah, so, and I'm selling steel containers to people like the Sullivan for RPM, and, mm-hmm. and they wanted the plastic because it was, uh, at that time, cheaper potentially. Okay, this is 1969? 1969, SBA Man of the Year. I really think we need to put a microscope on all of this because I think this is so important. This is your first giant step down the entrepreneur path. 
Absolutely. Okay, so in 62, you're a kid out of the reserves, no money, no nothing. You start working that uh, inland steel container. You're just getting started. Then it's lightning fast when you think about it. You think a handful of years later, you're SBA Man of the Year in Ohio and a runner-up nationally. And you have, are you the owner of a company in 1969? I owned, I was created the owner. I had a bunch of partners, okay, that had provided me the money. Right. Now, are these partners, this cluster of partners, is that your collective third hero? No. Who is the third hero? The third hero is not not on this part of the agenda. Let's put it this way. What we're talking here about people that turned out to be not my heroes, People that are trying to destroy my life that I already built. Oh, not, not quite heroes. No, just the opposite of the heroes. And this business, we were up already doing $6 million in sales. It was making money every single day. Doing how much in 69? $6 million. $6 million. And this all started from 62 to 69. You went from zero to $6 million a year. As you just said, profitable. You're making money every day. The company was going so well, I wanted to go into plastic pails from steel. Mm-hmm. And I had gotten a big order from U.S. Gypsum in Chicago. I was determined to do this because I was, at that time, I felt I was bulletproof and things were going so well and so forth. And I decided to raise, I have to now raise, you know, I think $800,000 to open up the plastic thing. But the business is good. We're, we've had no debt. I figured out, you know, how to get the working capital. And we were at this point now at 79th Street. We had, by then, 80 employees full-time. I mean, people lived in the neighborhood. And these people, when I started hiring these people, the first three people I hired to were three young girls that were living in one apartment right down the 79th Street by the railroad crossing there. And I was shocked to find out they, they with their families, were sharing one refrigerator. Believe mm-hmm. me, I spent seven, eight years in that atmosphere. I understand that. And it's affected me. Our companies collectively have 8,000 employees worldwide in factories. These are not offices. These are factory people. That experience affected me and made my commitment to the and respect for the hourly employee, the people that come into plants every single morning. When you say you had so many employees that were from the neighborhood, and this, of course, this is a, a near east side of Cleveland at that time, uh, overwhelmingly uh, black neighborhood, but you were way ahead of the curve in another respect. You didn't need EEO regulations. You did this because it was good for the community. It was good for business. It was good for you. It was exciting. I needed other people around me with different types of skills. I wanted a plastic pail business, and one board member told me, he said, Ed, do not do this because you're going not you lose control of your company. You will not have control. You'll have a bigger company, but the question is, slow down. Slow down, Eddie. Don't do this. Well, what did I realize, and he realized, and tried to warn me about, was the company had grown in such value, these shareholders wanted it sold. And the way they wanted it sold is because they grown, it was profitable, it had a great reputation, it looked like a business they wanted to invest a lot of money in. But, you know, I became a minority shareholder at that time. And we had committed the money to make the plastic pails. And it should have been the best day of life. And I had a board meeting coming up and called down to the National City Bank building to this board meeting. And a gentleman named Mr. Towell 
He was the spokesperson for the investors, took me in another room and sat down. And he said, Ed, this company's been very successful, but we just don't think you have. Listen to these words. I can hear the echo of them today sitting here. You don't have the education or the background to be running a company that's going to be 10 and $12 million. I looked right at him and I said, then how did we get here? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't have the background. Well, that was the long and the short of it is, you know, they absolutely hired and, and brought in a ex-U.S. steel person and that the steel companies were falling apart at that time. And I wasn't concerned about, didn't have the education. What got me was you don't have the background. And I asked him, and I asked the board when he said, where do you get this background? What, what are you talking about? And if anything motivated me, uh, you know, in my life is that somebody saying to me, you don't have the background. Well, we all know what that meant. And I knew what it meant. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like it. You want to say it? What did it mean? It means that you're, in this case, it means you're Irish Catholic, you know, you're poor and you're not educated. And that result is you're lucky. And it was us that made this a success. You know, you haven't born, born in the right corner. You weren't country club. All the things, the negative things that come at you. That's why the ability to handle rejection, which is an important part of this Aspire series, that was a lot of rejection. Right. We want to talk about rejection, but I don't want to leave this subject for well, a minute. Uh, hey, real simple. Okay, this is 69. Uh, so right? I, it was simple. I went to my partner and I said, what, ha- what happened? How did, how did this happen? You, you changed sides. You didn't vote with me. They could have never broken us up. And he said, well, they were trying, they didn't be, da, 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 da. For three months, the new CEO, he came in at 9 o'clock, went to the union club at 11 o'clock, came back at 2 o'clock and left at 3 o'clock and took my office over and put me in another office. So after six months of this, I said, that's enough. I walked in, I took my keys, went down to Chris, and I threw the keys on the desk, you know, and uh, I said, I quit. And I had called my brother Jerry, my brother Jerry picked me up, and I was unemployed with a great new son. They had control of my company. I had stock. They wouldn't buy me out unless I said, I'll sign a non-compete. It turned out to be the best thing that anybody could have done for me because it moves on to the next stage. I took a job in Philadelphia. The guy that was the SBA of the man of the year in in Philadelphia that won, I called him up and we were had gotten to be friends during the process. And he said, I got someone you can go to work with. You're, you're a smart young guy. So I went there and I left to Cleveland every Sunday. I drove the car because I couldn't afford the plane. To Philadelphia? To Philadelphia. Oh, that's I, a tough I drive. I drove on Sunday and came back on Friday. And I went to work for a gentleman in a public company named Lou Hatch, which again set the future in place for the public companies we have now. And Mr. Ambassador, I want to back up a little bit here because I think it's important to uh, wrap up the Cleveland Steel Container story. And I want to go all the way back to 62, 63. Uh, you're out of high school. You're out of the reserves. You get in business. You take a job at a steel container. It ends up you're working at Cleveland Steel Container uh, starting in around 62, 63. Come 1969, can I ask you? You were so successful at building this company, and you were the man. You built the company. Never mind. There were some investors and great employees and everything else, but this is your company. Are you a millionaire? No, I'm not a millionaire. Uh, Getting close. The value of the company 
would have said that I had that kind of money. You know, I never thought in those terms, and I never thought about that. I mean, I was on the way to building a bigger and better company. And I mean, I loved all those people. I, I loved what we had accomplished and what we were doing together. And I was highly motivated by that. I didn't think of it as my success. I thought of it as our success. I mean, you ever try to run a factory without people? You know, I could build a company in great wealth or two companies or three companies or a lot of companies. I learned that lesson ultimately was very important going on and not building a company and not making a lot of money, but building a company that employs 8,000 people worldwide and I'm proud of that. And there's factories. And I like it every single day I think about that. You know, I need them and they need me. So it was a, a t- terrible experience to go through. But it took me two years to get stabilize myself because I decided to make a run at them. A very famous person stepped in. I'm not going to use his name today. Okay. A very very person stepped in and heard the story. And, and he becomes the next hero and probably one of the biggest heroes, you know, outside mom. And Mrs. Vincent, he said, I've heard this story. What are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm trapped. I got 42% and they want me to sign a non-compete and I am not going to do that. He says, well, I'd like to help you. And your annual meeting's coming up in two months. I'd like to help you buy some stock and get back in this thing. Mm-hmm. Which when he jumped in, you're talking about a big dog here. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, it doesn't make many mistakes. We went after control. And the day before the meeting, they thought they had control of it. He and his associates had bought enough stock to give me control. So I went down to the meeting, and uh, it's a proxy. It's very formal. He said, anyone else that want to change their votes? This lawyer of his selection stepped up with things. He says, we have people changing votes here. These are all certified. They've been signed yesterday. Four six o'clock, notary public, da 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 da. We dispute your account. Mm. Say so immediately go into recess. Okay, so I was, fight, huh? yeah. So I get on the phone and call him and say, sir, you know, he said, uh, would you, uh, he said, I'd like to see you, Ed. So I go out to see him. I, he sit there and he says, well, what do you think? You're going to have your company back tomorrow. I said, it's terrific. He's excited. I said, I'm very excited. I just can't, I don't know why I can't, I, I'm not thanking you because I don't even know how to thank you. You know, and the answer is, I, I'm not going dis- to disappoint you. He says, I got another idea though. And I said, oh, he's going to pull a deal. And I know who I'm talking to. So I'm going, and I said, well, I think you're making a mistake. Hmm. He says, we'll do this tomorrow. But the net result is, so you'll have 70%. They don't like you. They're never going to like you. They don't like where you come from. They don't like your background. They don't like anything about you. You're the members of no country club. And the result is they hate someone like you. Couldn't hate you more. They're going to be a pain in the neck for the rest of your life. We'll make them buy you out. You won't give you what you should get, but I'll match it. Start all over, Ed. This is 1971. Mm-hmm. Start all over. Your company, you proved to them they were wrong. I believe you're talented. I believe you're going to do this again. I'm going to bet on it, but I don't want to be arguing with those stupid people and that don't like you. And if they don't like you, they don't like me. I can assure you that. And he says, so you got to think about it overnight. I turned away and said, I don't have to think about anything. That's the way I want to go. Well, that one day uh, changed your life. Bingo. These, these are pieces you can see why I've moved to talking about heroes, because each of them have played a role 
in uh, influencing me how to look at things and how to think about things, okay? I like your concept of the Ed Crawford story is, I like to think of it as the, as the building of Ed Crawford by some serendipitous heroes that came into your life over many, many years at different stages at different times, sometimes starting off as complete strangers yeah. that yes. molded the Ed Crawford that everybody knows today. I had to believe, as I was convincing people to believe in me, I had to believe in some people. It's hard to believe that people will come to your dream, especially when you come back with a new dream. And that's no different than, you know, taking over you know, Park, Ohio, you know, which was the next big event. We grew the container company, which was in a company called the Crawford Group. I spent 20 years building that from scratch. I built this privately held company, buying, fixing companies, doctor. It was been fantastic. 1992. Here's a public company called Park, Ohio. The stock is selling for $3. They're doing $60 million in sales. The same board has been there for 35 years. They're losing $5 million a year. I'm going to buy some stock. They're in the container business. Mm -hmm. They make metal containers and plastic containers. I get up to 5% and my lawyers say, I got to file uh, that I own 5% SEC, of sure. Yeah. Next morning, plain dealer, chairman, if Mr. Edward Crawford is going to use his recent acquisition of stock in our company and look towards moving, becoming a board member, we're vigorously going to oppose him. I'm sitting in my office and are you kidding me? They think I can become a board member. I never even thought of that. <laughs> you didn't care. I didn't care. I just ratcheted up. Now I'm going for that. I was I was just making an investment. Oh, but why would you want to invest? You knew this business very well, the yeah. container business. Yeah. Park, Ohio, no offense to anybody, they're floundering around. Well, they they're not going anywhere. 10 years. They're not going anywhere. Why would you want to invest in them? Well, I wanted to invest in them because I knew I could turn the company around. And they had a $31 million NOL. And I knew they was losing $5 million a year. And I knew that I could fix it. I had now spent 25 or 30 years working on turning around corporate companies, solving problems, labor disputes, labor deals, whatever, made it back and forth, everything else. So I was ready. I was a doctor of, of, of that. Of a corporate doctor? That's right. There were 36 people in the corporate office. A month later, there were six, and we were still doing the same amount of money. So uh, sometimes that corporate doctor has to be a corporate surgeon, huh? More than a surgeon. Uh -huh. Well, the answer is creation of jobs. Everyone talks about creation of jobs, all the politicians. I think about job retention. Mm -hmm. If there were 50 employees and they have a problem and they're going to go out of business and I can save 35 of them, I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. But to do that, you got to get rid of the 15 That's that exactly. weren't doing the company any good. That's right. How did you know the first time you bought a dollar's worth of Park, Ohio shares? It sounds like you knew then, hey, I can fix this company. Of course but, I did. Okay, but when you invest a dollar, you're not going to be able to fix the company until you get control of the company. And you knew when you started investing, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get well, I, control of this company. I'm going to turn it around. Well, let's put it this way. I'm going to make, I don't know if I'm going to get control of the company, but I'm going to make myself important enough to this company that they're going to take me on. Once I got the position, I didn't have control of the company. They had control of the company still, the chairman and everything. And for the first year of the board meetings, I would go there and say, you have to do this so we're not losing $5 million. Mm -hmm. They would not give me a second because you need a motion in a second. 
they would not give me a second. So I never got anything voted on. Mm-hmm. They ignored me. They absolutely wouldn't even talk to me in the meetings. It was hysterical. I mean, there's the whole world against, here comes the mm-hmm. Irishman, you know, and, uh, you know, <laughs> let's, what do we do with him? But I kept telling them, and finally they got the idea. So I put in enough heat on them that they put the company up for sale. Believe it or not, they couldn't sell the company because no one would buy it. And the longest strike in UAW history was at Ohio Crankshaft on Harvard Avenue. They were in federal lawsuits. It was impossible. Park Ohio was going to be out of business unless the strike was settled. And when I when they finally couldn't sell it because they couldn't get over that hurdle, no one would buy it. I said, I will buy it, and I'll sell you one of my companies, which is making money, Marsh Allen. Remember the Beat All Brothers? Sure. I own that company. Uh-huh. It was making money. I said, I'm going to bring that company in, and I'm going to cut the losses of the company. I'll bring this company in. We'll be making money. And that result- So you bought the company? No, actually, they put it up for sale to get around me. Yeah, but, but they the couldn't question, sell it. They, they couldn't sell it. So they had to come back. And they horse traded with you, finally. They, they, they came back and said, uh, you know, what is it going to take to get this done? I said, well, I got, I got Marsh Allen. I'll show you Marsh Allen for stock. They did. And it was a buyout based on earnings. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any idea how, much, how fast I could redo the company. Mm-hmm. So I was supposed to get 12% in the deal. I got 38%. Once I got 38%, I took it over at that particular point. The chairman of that company, the, the guy that fought me, that put the article in the plain dealer, they spent a million and two hundred thousand dollars trying to prevent me from getting the board seat. Mm-hmm. I found myself in federal court. The company Parker Ohio went and got a federal judge to take it. And the same thing, I end up in court the following Wednesday. And the following Wednesday, the judge comes in. The federal court gave me the list the next day. Once I had that, then they had to run for cover. Hey, know, what was on the list? All the shareholders. Oh. So I could contact them. And for for months, they wouldn't even give you the list of the shareholders. They were so indignant. I mean, this is the same group, same type of thinking that took the, my first company away from me. Mm-hmm. They were all from the same league, all mm-hmm. the same the club mm-hmm. or clubs. Right. And you're the red-haired Irish guy. That's right. Exactly. Was- Chapter 3 ends with Edward Crawford on top of the mountain. He had parlayed his ownership in several small, mid-sized manufacturers into a controlling interest in a hundred-year-old public company, Park, Ohio. He could have stopped right there, but the true entrepreneur stands at the peak of the mountain and looks to the horizon for the next climb. That story continues in Aspire Chapter 4, The Corporate Doctor. I'm Josh Booth. Thanks for listening.